Good morning. Good morning. We wait for the Lord. Our soul waits. And in his word we hope. Our soul waits for the Lord. More than those who watch for the morning. More than those who watch for the morning. Our soul waits this morning by opening him a very familiar, old, but significant hymn of praise to God as it waits and yearns for the Redeemer and his praise. If we can, let's all stand together and sing the first hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. We will stand together, if you can, and the words are on your sheet as you've had them.
Our prayers for to approach this morning will take a slightly different form and a varied form. I would like to begin with a call and response prayer penned by the 6th century uh, Greek theologian Romanus um, who operated within the Constantinople area with a call and response prompted by the word Savior and you simply respond with save me. So when I give the prompt Savior as it's on your sheet We can all collectively respond, save me. I'd like to follow this then with a meditation on words by the German poet Klopstock, which was then set to music very famously by Gustav Mahler in his second symphony in C minor, most notably noted as The Resurrection. I will read Klopstock's poem, at least the beginning of it, and we will then hear it sung um, as it's set to Mahler's music. We will then follow this with our traditional Lord's Prayer, set together collectively, and in the tongue that is your mother tongue. And we know that Hillhead here has many different tongues represented. So we will say this all together collectively in the voice that is the collaboration of different voices in different tongues, different languages as a whole. So let us begin with the words of Romanus linking in with our Bible passages today called On the Woman with an issue of blood. Let us pray. Like the woman with the issue of blood, we fall down before thee, Lord, so that thou will deliver us from distress, O lover of humans, and grant to us forgiveness for our failures, in order that we may cry out to thee, With the contrition of heart, Savior, save me. We hymn thee in odes, O exalted King, since thou dost not deprive me of thy glory. For thou dost overlook my sins, wishing to find me repentant. Thou who art in thy nature sinless, hence we beg that thy long-suffering produce in us conversion and not presumption. For we cry, Savior, now thou didst walk upon the earth with feet of incorruption, dispensing healing to all. For thou didst give sight to the blind, muscular control to the weakened, By touch of thy hand and by a word, by thy will alone. And this the woman with the issue of blood had heard. She came to thee to be saved, silent in speech, 
by crying out earnestly to thee with her hand, Savior, save me. And in the words of Friedrich Gottlieb Glockstock, you will rise again, yes, rise again, my mortal dust after a short repose. Eternal life will be granted to you by him who has called him to himself. You are sown in order to blossom again. Oh, believe, heart, only believe, nothing is lost to you. in our approach, our waiting, and our rising by saying together the prayer our Lord taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Well, 
we have a chance to engage some of our children this morning. And so maybe some of the children can come forward at this point. Because you can have a seat at the moment. But we are going to be talking later with the, the parents about the question of faith. Now, faith is not an easy word or an easy concept to understand. Faith is really, really difficult. So I've asked my boys to try and help us to figure out the concept of faith. Now, we're going to start with a word that is often confused with faith, but is not identical to faith, and that is the word trust. Now, my boys have a little game that we play to work out the nature of trust a little more um, uh, dramatically than if we just gave it a dictionary definition. So I'm going to ask Aiden to come first, and he is going to demonstrate to us his ability to trust his father which is an immense trust. Okay, Aiden, are you ready? No bending of the legs. Whoa. Okay, very, very good. Thank you, Aiden. You see, Aiden, why were you able to do that? (laughs) Did you trust me to be behind you? Yeah, and that's an important thing. How could you trust me? How do you think you could trust me? Have I ever let you drop before? No, no. And are you pretty sure I'm behind you? Yeah, you're pretty sure behind you. That's right. Now, but what would happen, Aiden, to that trust if we said, okay, you come and do it again, but I'm not going to stand behind you this time? No. I'm going to blindly point in the audience and have someone else stand behind you. Would you do it? Oh, let's try that. <laughs> let's try that. Uh, Dave! Okay, Dave, you come here. Aiden, let's see if you still have that element of trust. Okay. Ooh, well done. Okay, okay. Now, I noticed you did something this time that you didn't do with me. You kind of look behind you. <laughs> is he there? Is he really there? Is he really there? Now, trust is really important. And we trust people because we have had experience with them before. Or we look behind and we know that they're there. Yes. Now, what about faith? Is that the same? If Carl came up here, Carl, why don't you come up here? Okay. Now, I'm going to be in front of you. Okay. And you go backwards. (laughs) Of course you're not going to do that. No one would do that. That would be crazy. Now, my boys, Carl and Aiden, are presently very obsessed with Star Wars. 
Star Wars is everywhere in our household. There's a new movie coming out, episode, episode seven, and we have been going through all the six episodes and looking at all the various plot lines, the characters, and something that is called the Force. The Force in Star Wars. Now, can you see the Force? No. So what does Luke Skywalker have to do to get the Force? What, what does Obi-Wan Kenobi tell him to do? Become a Jedi. Become a Jedi. What does the Jedi have to do with the Force? Mm-hmm. Use it. How? Trust the lightsaber. Ah, but you see now, and for whatever we think of George Lucas, we know that George Lucas was very influenced by a lot of different um, religions and spiritualities, but for whatever we think of those, George Lucas was catching on to something because he realized that this idea of the force is not just about trust. So come up here again, Carl. Okay. Turn around. Okay. Now I'm going to come over to you and I'm going to say if you were going to be a real Star Wars person, you'd have to let the Force be with you. (laughs) Hold on. (laughs) You're not a good Jedi here. Let the Force be with you, which means you would have to go backwards and you would have to have faith, not trust, because there's nothing to look, it's nothing to see behind you. You'd have to have faith that the force would catch you. Could you think you could do that? No. <laughs> no. That's, that you can sit down. That is really hard to do. Really hard to do. So for whatever we think of the Star Wars spectacle, there is something that the, the endurance of Star Wars, I think, is that it's tapping into something quite profound there. Trust is in something that we can see, that is there. And then we put our trust in that person. And I was happy to see Aiden put his trust in Dave. But when something's not there, then it becomes a matter of faith. And to believe that that faith, or believe that that force will support you is very difficult. Very difficult. Now, this isn't a story about the Jedi. No. This is the story about putting our faith in God. Is God here, present to hand? Can we look behind and see that God's there? No, we can't. So faith is absolutely important for us. Believing in something which is not available to us, that is not present to hand, but believing with the power so much that we give ourselves completely over to it. That is the challenge of faith that we're going to explore a little later as adults. So thank you very much for your assistance on that. We are going to sing the hymn from Common Ground, number 62. Number 62. If you believe and I believe.
let us listen for the word of God. First of all, Psalm 130. From the depths I call to you, Yahweh. Lord, listen to my cry for help. Listen compassionately to my pleading. If you never overlooked our sins, Yahweh, Lord, could anyone survive? But you do forgive us, and for that we revere you. I wait for Yahweh, my soul waits for him. I rely on his promise, my soul relies on the Lord more than a watchman does on the coming of the dawn. And then in the gospel, as told by Mark, when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered round him, and he stayed by the lakeside. Then one of the synagogue officials came up, Jairus by name, and seeing him, fell at his feet and pleaded with him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is desperately sick. Come and lay your hands on her to make her better and to save her life. Jesus went with him, and a large crowd followed him. They were pressing all around him. Now, there was a woman who had suffered from a hemorrhage for 12 years. After long and painful treatment under various doctors, she had spent all that she had without being any better for it. In fact, she was getting worse. She had heard about Jesus, and she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his cloak. If I can touch even his clothes... She had told herself, I shall be well again. And the source of the bleeding dried up instantly. And she felt in herself that she was cured of her complaint. Immediately aware that power had gone out for him, Jesus turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? His disciples said to him, You see how the crowd is pressing all around you, and yet you say, who touched me? But he continued to look around to see who had done it. Then the woman came forward, frightened and trembling, because she knew what had happened to her. And she fell at his feet, and she told him the whole truth. My daughter, he said, your faith has restored your health. Go in peace. And be free from your complaint. While he was still speaking, some people arrived from the house of the synagogue official to say, Your daughter has died. Why put the master to any further trouble? But Jesus had overheard this remark of theirs, and he said to the official, Don't be afraid, only have faith. And he allowed no one to go with him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. So they came to the official's house and Jesus noticed all the commotion 
with people weeping and wailing unrestrainedly. He went in and he said to them, Why all this commotion and crying? The child is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him. So he turned them all out and said, And taking with him the child's father and mother and his own companions, he went into the place where the child lay. And taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I tell you to get up. The little girl got up at once and began to walk about, for she was 12 years old. At this, they were overcome with astonishment. And he ordered them strictly not to let anyone know about it and told them to give her something to eat. Did you hear about the remarkable story this week of a young mother and a young son, son was under the age of one, who were traveling in one of these little small Cessna planes somewhere over the jungles of Colombia, and the plane went down right into the thickest part of the jungle. Did you hear about this? When the rescuers got to the carnage of the plane, they found the pilot dead. But it was days later, not hours, but days later, that they found the mother and the young child alive in the jungle. And not just alive, but basically unharmed. It was a fantastic story of survival, of defying death. It's a miracle, the Air Force commander said when they found her. The jungle was dense. The plane crash was extremely smashed and broken. How anyone could have survived is nothing short of a miracle. So the newspapers dubbed her the Miracle Mum. Now, we love accounts like this. We love it when humans beat all the odds. We love miracle stories. Now, granted, some are trivial. When in sports, the underdog beats the mighty champion. Some are medical. 
is when someone overcomes a deadly disease or is healed of a supposedly incurable ailment. Some are pure wonderment. as when a child falls from six stories and survives unscathed. Or when a bullet passes through a skull, missing all the vital parts, and the victim is alive to tell the story. And our media is full of such stories. Our speech full of the hyperboles that follow on from them. Oh, it's a miracle I met you, given the crowds today. What a miraculous save to keep us in the game. Oh, it's nothing short of a miracle I made it at all, given all the work I had to do today. And of course, we even have the jokes. Now, you've heard of the classic, the man who's on the top of the roof of his house as the floodwaters are rising and rising. And a boat comes by and says, quick, quick, get in before the waters get too high. And he says, no, no, I'm a man of God. God will bring a miracle. Second boat comes by when the water's up to his waist. He says, come in, come in. No, no, man of God. God will bring a miracle. Third boat comes by. It's already up to his neck. Quick, quick, you're going to die, you're going to die. Don't worry. A miracle will come. Finally, a helicopter comes down. The water's just about above his head. Drops the rope, says, if you don't come now, it's all over. No, a miracle will come. I am a man of God. And of course, the river sweeps him away to his death. And as the man enters the pearly gates and talks to the angels at the front of the gates, he's despondent, having lost his faith. He says, what happened? I was sure you were going to bring a miracle. And the angel said, well, I don't know what you're complaining about. We brought you three boats and a helicopter. Now, the joke here, of course, seems to convey a point. And one not too far off the words of the American novelist Willa Cather. Miracles, she says, seem to me to rest not so much upon healing power coming suddenly near us from afar, but upon our perceptions being made finer, so that for a moment our eyes can see and our ears can hear what is there around us always. And this seems in line with that famous quote from Albert Einstein, when he says, quote, there are only two ways to live your life. One is as though nothing is a miracle. The other is as though everything is a miracle. But these kind of sentiments are not what give miracles the allure they continue to have for us. Miracles fascinate us today because we live in a world increasingly understood in terms of scientific laws that govern the universe in such a way that they are empirically predictable and instrumentally harnessable. And we love the exception where something contravenes these laws, when something disrupts the determined order and shakes up the predictability of things. And we especially love the miracles that cheat death. These, I guess for understandable reasons, are our favorite. Not that we believe we can 
ultimately cheat death, but if, for one statistically rare moment, some miraculously, someone miraculously escapes death, we secretly rejoice. Death, we know, is that ultimate leveler of human and natural life. And it's in those miraculous moments where death is temporarily foiled. Now, the funny thing is that the miracles of the Bible, and the miracles of Jesus especially, are not so happily embraced. Of course, the naysayers of religions, and oh, how they bray loudly today, they debunk, the mirac- they debunk those miracles as a starting point. But even yeasayers of religion, those who confess to believe, often start, stop short of full-scale acceptance of the literal truth of the miraculous events recorded in the scriptures, and particularly those of Jesus in the Gospels. Do we really believe Jesus turned water into wine? That he fed 5,000 from a boy's packed lunch? Walked on water during a storm? Healed the blind with some dirt and spittle? More an extreme, do we really accept he raised people from the dead? As much as we like it when people defy the death of a plane crash, we have a harder time swallowing the literal interpretations of Jesus' actions that countered the basic laws of physics and biology. And here I suggest we are children of demythology. Rudolf Bultmann, the 20th century German theologian, taught us not to take the fantastical stories of the Bible as literal truth. When our world knows perfectly well they are not, by the laws of scientific rationality, possible. Instead, he told us to seek in them the kernel of the gospel claim, the kerygma, as he called it, that involves love, grace, mercy, the freedom of a authentic life, etc., etc. We cannot, he wrote, as early as 1941, use electric lights and radios, and in the event of illness, avail ourselves of modern medical and clinical means, and at the same time, believe in the spirit and the wonder world of the New Testament. Now, whether or not we're aware of Bultmann or not, we have, all of us, at some level, inherited a rational skepticism about the way we ought to interpret the Bible. And few of us would insist that, say, the virgin birth has to be taken as literal, or else our entire faith would collapse in a heap of rubble. So then, what are we to make of this passage in Mark and of Jairus' daughter? 
Do we demythologize this too? And render the story not as one about literal resurrection, but about a coming promise of everlasting life in the Christ who heals all our non-physical wounds and overcomes death only at the metaphysical level. Now we're all going to have our differences of opinion here. And knowing this church as I do, those differences will range across the full spectrum of possibilities and opinions. And we could argue contentiously and repeatedly over each of these opinions. But this, I think, would actually miss the point of the story. For surely the point is less to stand in wonder at the miraculous power of Jesus, even if we are a believer in this kind of power, literally, and more to wonder at the faith of the two figures involved, Jairus and the woman with the disease. For their faith is is as extraordinary as anything that transpires as a result of it. Let us define a miracle as the defiance of the laws of necessary outcome. The defiance of the laws of necessary outcome. And let us in turn define faith as giving ourselves over to that which, according to those laws, is wholly unavailable. Both the woman with the 12-year-old hemorrhaging and Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, give themselves over to the healing power of the touch. The woman's hope was extraordinary enough. If I but touch his clothes, I will be made well, she says in verse 28. Now, even in the day of Christ's culture, the mere touch of a garment was not an available source of healing. It came with no incantation No heightened ritual, no special potions, no invocations of the gods. And yet, she gave herself over to it completely and in the most pedestrian of circumstances. And Jairus, too, held out his hope beyond reasonable expectation, even more when the daughter was pronounced dead. But what was it exactly that effected these miracles? The first of the two episodes, as Jesus is en route to Jairus' house, is there in the Gospel of Mark to tell us precisely why and what effected these miracles. It is not the touching of the garment per se at least according to Jesus. 
daughter, he says, your faith has made you well. And this is the same with Jairus moments later. Do not fear, Jesus tells him, only believe. The miracle here is enacted through the believer's faith. And this is to say, if we stay with the definitions I suggested above, that the real miracle in these two episodes is the faith itself. The woman's faith, Jairus's faith, both of them defy the laws of necessary outcome. It is they who perform a miracle as much as Jesus himself. Now, hold on, I hear you say. It is one thing to demythologize. It is quite another to turn the tables altogether and claim we ourselves can enact the miraculous. If the laws of this world are going to be defied, that is for the office of the divine, not the human, lest we devolve into magic or any other kind of forms of sorcery and thaumaturgy. But this is the extraordinary prospect of faith. Whether in Christ's day or our own day, the necessary outcomes that this world exacts in the name of both human and natural law founder under the power of faith. Why? Because true faith unites the human and the divine. And this is to say, true faith is both human and divine. A reciprocation of giving yourself, of giving over to. We giving ourselves over to God as much as God giving himself herself over to us. The episode of the woman shows us this most deeply. The Greek word translated as hemorrhage there literally means flow. Her blood was flowing out for 12 years. Probably the experts tell us a form of uterine fibroid whatever that is. But what happens when she touches Jesus' garment? Completely unaware of the touch, completely unaware of the woman and her desire, Jesus became, as the scriptures tell us, quote, immediately aware that power had gone forth from him. In the touch of faith is the intimacy of exchange. The one flowing into the other. And this is dramatized in the second episode with Jairus' daughter. Here, in a form of reciprocation, Jesus hands back faith to the Father. 
the earlier faith he had shown when his daughter was on the point of death. Do not fear, only believe, Jesus tells him. But now it is heightened, for the daughter is dead. And then Jesus takes the parents and enters into the intimacy of the home, away from the crowds and the jeering faithless. And in the touch of the hand restores the 12 years that is the daughter's life. And notice 12 years occur in both episodes. This is no accident. Talitha kum, Jesus says, girl, arise. Faith here has made things well. The faith of human divine interaction. Faith is a miracle then. As much now as it was then. And we do not mean this simply in the sense that as our world grows increasingly suspicious of the unscientific and incredulous of the unscientific, it's a miracle that anyone should still believe. Well, look at the levels of defiant belief that continue to manifest themselves in this world. Even if that defiance takes a malevolent cast, as we see across our televisions, repeatedly, day by day, and particularly this week. Or think of our fixations with the so-called miraculous events around us, the miracle mum of Colombia, for example. No, it's not that. Rather, we should see the miracle of faith in this sense. Faith is a miracle insofar as in giving ourselves over to that which by law is unavailable, we defy the narrow possibilities of this world and open up wholly new possibilities. This opening up is the space where Christ flows outside himself as he enters into our situation, into our pain, into our sorrows. The outflowing of our life's embattled circumstances as so beautifully characterized for us by the plaint of Psalm 130. Ultimately, Christ flows into the very outflow of our condition as mortal beings. The raising of Jairus' daughter is, of course, the very foreshadowing of Christ's own passion story. His entering into the crux of humanity, death. Here, we enact a miracle by letting Christ into our own story. His story being our story. It's a miracle as this divine becomes human and this human divine. We cannot, of course, pretend to the divine. We are who we are, humans bound by the nature of this earth. But in faith, we enter into the miraculous, which is to say, 
we defy the world's knowledge of necessity and rise up beyond the limits of our finitude. As the world suffers in the deprivation of its finitude, let us, along with the woman in the crowd, along with Jairus, the religious leader, let us claim together our faith has made us well. Amen. We sing the hymn in common ground, God give us life when all around spells death. Common ground number 40. We stand if we can. Just a word of explanation before we come to our prayers. You'll notice that in the order of service there is a sung response, but we're not going to use it, <clears throat> um, frankly, because the events in the news this week just made it feel redundant. So let us pray. 
I think everything that we say and do this morning is freighted with the emotional charge of world events. We can't ignore the news, and so it will be the focus of our prayers. God our Father, in the face of the countless personal tragedies that we experience as ordinary men and women, and of the global tragedies of which we are witnesses, it is sometimes hard to hold on to our conviction that goodness is stronger than evil, that love is stronger than hate. And yet, the glimpse that you have given us of the transforming power of your love will not let us go that easily. So today, we remember before you all who have died in the racist shootings in a church in Charleston, South Carolina, and those who grieve for them. In the face of such suffering, it would be easy to despair. But we see not only the suffering, but the redeeming power of forgiveness as the families of those who were shot refused to respond with hatred, but instead offered forgiveness to the gunman. And we see that goodness is stronger than evil. We remember before you those who have died in the terrorist attacks in Tunisia and France, and those who grieve for them. In the face of such suffering, it would be easy to despair. But we see not only the suffering but the self-sacrificing love of those who died on a Tunisian beach while shielding their loved ones from the gunman. And we see that love is stronger than hate. We remember before you the Shia Muslims who were killed by an ISIS bomber as they prayed in their mosque in Kuwait, and those who grieve for them. In the face of such suffering, it would be easy to despair. But we see not only the suffering, but the courage of so many Sunni Muslims who then risked their own lives to protest against the killing of their Shia neighbours and to stand with them in their suffering. And we see that light is stronger than darkness. And we remember before you all who, driven by war and famine, trust themselves to flimsy boats on a vast ocean 
or conceal themselves in the wheel arches of lorries in a desperate attempt to reach a safe haven. In the face of such suffering, it would be easy to despair. But we see not only the suffering, but the courage and resilience that carries men and women and children across thousands of miles of desert and ocean in the conviction that the people of a strange land will welcome and accept them. And we see that life is stronger than death. We thank you for all these miracles of faith. And we pray that if our faith is tested by loss or bereavement or persecution, we too will have the grace and the courage to respond in faith and love as they have done. But most of all, we thank you for the continuing miracle of your faith in us. That despite our faults and our weaknesses, through our lives and by our prayers, your kingdom will come. Amen. Pray for the offering. 
We bring these gifts not out of duty, not out of obligation, not out of habit, but as tokens of the faithful, that they may enact what may not seem possible in a world in so desperate need of the impossible. Amen. Our final hymn is from the common ground again, hymn number 73, Look Forward in Faith. Again, if we are able, we stand to sing. of Paul's words to the Galatians chapter 3. Does God supply you with the spirit and work miracles among you by doing the works of the law or by your believing what you have heard? For the one who is righteous will live by faith. Go forth then in the spirit of that faith to live the life of the redeemed by Christ, to live the life of miraculous faith.